tuning in today. I'm Lisa Tuggle and this is Evangelination, evangelizing the nation for the best and brightest future of our country, our world, our families, and our eternal souls. And what could be more important than that? Now we took a pause last week from our series on the virtues to consider Ash Wednesday and the point of the holy season of Lent. So now we will get back to the business of pondering the virtues. We continue today with the virtue of temperance, which hits right at the heart of the season of Lent, which is why we needed to start with this virtue. Temperance is also very concrete, and we can see it or the lack of it right away. So it is an easy virtue to start with in considering the life of virtue. Now. Permit me to digress momentarily to give us a little context and a little motivation for practicing temperance this week. Okay, let me ask you a question. It should be an easy one for you, but it may not be. Who was the founding father that became our nation's second president? Recall that the father of our nation Uh, is George Washington. Washington's sacrificial service for his country truly makes him the father of our nation. And every president after him is called to be like him, a father to the nation. You know, Washington's humble and heroic service spanned many, many years from the time of the development of the Declaration of Independence through eight horribly difficult years as general of the army and really the altogether divinely guided reason that the Revolutionary War was fought and won that we might have a nation apart from the tyranny of foreign rule uh, that is you know, ruled by others not on our own soil. And then after George Washington finally returned to his beloved Mount Vernon and his wife and family after the war he was begged to leave home again this time for the sake of the first and only constitutional convention to guide what would surely have been a failed attempt at unifying the states had he not been there. You know, for many long months, Washington presided over that process that would give us the most unique form of government on the planet, which is uh, a nation of self-governing people under God. And by the way, I believe that this is the true way of human society as revealed in salvation history in the Bible. Anyway, after many long months of convening with fellow framers of the U.S. Constitution, George Washington was then asked to serve his country again, this time as president. And he did so, somewhat reluctantly, for another eight years. So it was he who set the example of temperance, that no person should serve longer than two terms as our nation's president. Otherwise, such a person might begin to enjoy power too much and begin to act like a king, as for example, (laughs) with the astonishing singular acts, uh, you know, like of the 50 executive orders uh, we've experienced in the first two weeks of office uh, of our current president. Um, 
Now, most of the presidents have followed George Washington's example of temperance, of the moderation of his own power by only allowing himself two terms of office, although FDR was an exception. But now, after George Washington served as the true father of our nation, to whom did the baton of leadership pass? Do you know who was the second president of our nation? Well, of course, it was John Adams. John Adams was also a signer of the Declaration of Independence, a God-fearing Christian man, and one who assisted in establishing the checks and balances of the Constitution of this land. So Adams became the second president of the United States of America from 1797 to 1801, just one term in office. Now, this is all to lead up to the fact that John Adams once said in a speech to the military in, in 1798, the following words. He said, quote, we have no government armed with power, capable of contending with human passions unbridled by morality and religion. Our constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate to the government of any other. Wow. So this is why, as Americans, we must study religion and morality, and specifically the Christian religion, which was the only operative religion the Founding Fathers had in mind. Okay, let's be clear. Now, this is not to altogether exclude the practice of other religions in America. However, it is very important to understand that anyone who practices world religions foreign to that of the American Founding Fathers must understand that America's form of government is uniquely Judeo-Christian. America is founded upon biblical principles, and that cannot be erased, even if people today want to try to do that by rewriting history. So while America's founding fathers were Christian, there were Jewish settlers in the colonies who were in support of the pursuit of a new society, a society set apart from the endlessly repeated stream of tyrants ruling people throughout all of human history. And our nation owes a special debt of gratitude to Christianity's elder brother, or we might even say mother, which is Judaism. Since Jesus Christ and the Blessed Mother and St. Joseph and Peter and so many of the apostles and disciples of the early church were in fact Jews. And Christianity clearly arose out of the rich soil of the covenant relationship and history of the chosen people of Israel and the Jewish religion. So make no mistake, our nation was founded upon the teachings of the Judeo-Christian Bible, upon the Torah, the Ten Commandments, the Prophets, the writings of the Hebrew Bible, and especially upon the Gospels and New Testament writings. In all the deliberations and writings of the Founding Fathers, the Bible was the number one quoted book by far, far beyond any quotes of philosophers or political theorists of the time. <clears throat> so to understand the exceptional gift of the unique form of government with which our nation was founded 
and to retain the freedoms which we ourselves have enjoyed and which can and will be lost to the tyrants and rogues ever seeking to arise from the hearts of fallen humans if they are not kept in check by our brilliant constitutional system of checks and balances. We have to accept the fact that it is absolutely necessary to be a moral and religious people, as John Adams so wisely made clear. See, our Constitution is a recipe for freedom because it is structured to circumvent tyranny and all the many ways that tyranny can develop. So we need to return to the actual words of the original Constitution and to the original intent of its meaning, the original intent of its framers, its, its authors, a meaning which has been distorted and abused, particularly by attaching to the Constitution every judicial branch decision that has ever been made as a legal precedent with the force of law. You know, that was never intended by our founding fathers and is really the means by which we have lost our way of living as a constitutional republic. It's through an out-of-control judiciary as well as, you know, an out-of-control federal government. Restoration is needed. And it begins, as we said, with being a moral and religious people again. It begins with practicing virtue which is the foundation of the moral life. You know, it's not the fault of our constitution that our country is in a bit of a mess. It's the fault of all of us who have fallen asleep as the governors of ourselves through the exercise of virtue and as the governors of our nation because we have simply allowed the hired hands that we select to perform certain functions in government offices to allocate to themselves more and more power in an intemperate way. This is what's happened. So the point of all this is that we need virtue, especially the virtue of temperance, of moderation of our self-interest and, and, and modesty of intention in order to emerge again as the keepers of our own God-given rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. A happiness which, by the way, according to the Founding Fathers, absolutely included the right to private property and its management. It is not by Marxist movements of violence or communism, which always leads to tyranny, that all this will be done. Saving our nation means becoming again a moral and religious people, and the quickest way to do that is not by arguing points of religious doctrine, but rather by acknowledging the basic truths of nature and nature's God. Those truths found in the daily human experience we all have of vice or virtue. Will we be good or not today? This is the question. And our nation and the freedom of our families and ourselves hangs in the balance thereon. Now, temperance hits right at the heart of the conversion we need as a nation. We have misconstrued freedom to mean license, to do whatever seems desirable to us at any given time. But this is not freedom, we know that, but rather slavery, often to vice 
and to the endless feeding of our appetites for almost everything, for food, drink, sex, power, attention, control, accolades, titles, possessions, opportunities, travel, novel experiences, luxury, you name it, everything can be desired to an excess. You know, there's almost no end to what the human heart, mind, and body can desire. You know, and I include heart and mind as well as body, because not only do we have basic animal appetites for food or drink or sexual pleasure, which we might want to have to excess and without proper recourse to good manners, but we can also fall into excesses of the mind and heart as well. Excessive study, uh, curiosity beyond what is appropriate, pursuing ideas or ideologies that are excessive in one direction without being tempered by common sense or other fundamental principles of human life and dignity. You know, I mean, abortion politics is a good example of this because it literally and figuratively throws the baby out with the bath water. It is horrific in its vicious excess in its excessive attention to one concern without it being tempered by other equally important, nay, actually much more important concerns, such as, for example, the life of a child and the well-being of a mother, father, family, and society itself, which cannot stand on such a heinous crime against humanity itself as abortion is. Okay, so let's look now at what St. Thomas Aquinas teaches about the very necessary virtue of temperance. First, we see that temperance crowns all we say and do with balance. You know, the ancient pre-Socratic philosopher Heraclitus taught that truth is found in the tension of opposites. Now, for a pre-Socratic, pre-Christian philosopher, I believe that this was well said. Temperance is keeping opposites in tension, balancing things rightly, so that nothing gets too out of control or, well, tyrannical. And our Constitution is a perfect example of this. We have the judiciary branch, we have the executive branch, we have the legislative branch, and these are balanced amongst one another. And then we also have, you know, the state governments, which ought to balance the federal branches. And then we have the people who have all the rights left to them that are not enumerated to other entities in the Constitution. So it's a balanced republic that was envisioned and that we seek to uh, rediscover and maintain. So if we are to have a society that is governed by and for the people, those people must govern themselves with temperance because an unruly people require more and more laws and more and more policing. So, you know, those people must also demand that those in public office act with temperance. Okay. So temperance is important for the people and for the people they select to govern them. Now, St. Thomas Aquinas linked the cardinal virtue of temperance to seven other virtues. Are you ready? You want to hear them? These seven other virtues connected with temperance are honesty, humility, meekness, moderation, modesty, 
orderliness, and caution or self-control. Furthermore, St. Thomas associated the practice of the cardinal virtue of temperance with the gift of the Holy Spirit that is fear of the Lord. As we know, this is really in practice fear of sin, and we fear sin because we don't want to offend the Lord whose company we enjoy and whose person we esteem with the maximum amount of reverence, affection, and just gratitude, much as we would have for a noble and good father. So, as we mature in the gift of the Holy Spirit, that is the fear of the Lord, we look upon God as our own loving father. And maybe we may even embrace God as a spouse, which is a profoundly biblical idea. And we grow in reverence and awe of God's providence and person. And these together breed true humility in us. True humility being summarized as the knowledge that God is God and we are not. And as a result, we grow in the sense of horror we feel about sin and about offenses against God. So this leads us to a heightened vigilance in avoiding any occasion of sin. And we resolve firmly to avoid any occasion of sin and to do the will of the Father and to do all in our power to put love of God at the center of our lives instead of love of self. So, it is the fear of losing our most valuable friendship with God that motivates and strengthens us to live the virtue of temperance. Okay? Now, what does this mean practically speaking? Okay? Temperance is moderation, first and foremost, in the use of all created goods. Temperance means exercising the freedom to say no to one's own appetites. Now, appetite is like a child. If you don't rule your appetite, it will rule over you. So is this not the key problem in Western society today? Do we allow every possible want or desire or inclination to rule over us, thereby making us slaves to it? You know, this is why Lent is so vitally important. The practice of temperance is its principal focus. Now, many people resort to telling so-called white lies to get ahead in the world. Often it starts in job interviews. We also experience it in advertising and in political campaigning. But lying leads to tyranny. Honesty, the first virtue associated with temperance, is a foundational virtue for our nation and our families. Sincerity, transparency, and truthfulness in words and actions is a form of life-saving temperance. Let's not lie anymore. As Revelation 22:27 states, quote, Nothing unclean will enter it, the city of the living God, nor anyone who does abominable things or tells lies. End quote. So lying is an automatic disqualifier of both the heavenly city and the earthly city, that is, the society of the kingdom on earth. So lying disqualifies us from our true happiness and from paradise and the paradise that we want to have as a society, as a nation. And truth in um, the media is uh, one of the number one things we need to fix.
So lying includes lying to ourselves, to others, and to God, which is really sort of a silly thing since God sees everything. Okay, humility is the next virtue associated with temperance. Humility is the awareness that all one's gifts come from God. It also includes a, a deep appreciation for the gifts of God found in ourselves and in others. And that's why the only true context for sexual encounter is within the bonds of a lifelong commitment of marriage because it protects that, that beautiful gift that is sexuality. It's because of a deep appreciation for and a reverence of the gift of sexuality and the gifts that are unique to other persons, especially the dignity of others um, and, and their need to share intimately with someone who will guard and love for life what they intimately share. So when we are humble, we show reverence, and that includes not taking what does not belong to us, but showing great reverence for um, everyone around us, and especially, first, uh, firstly, for God and for the gifts that uh, he displays of himself in the gifts uh, that we experience in others. Okay, the next dimension of temperance is meekness. What is meekness? Meekness is serenity of spirit, especially in difficult times. We restrain our inclination to hysteria or complaining when uh, we are meek. We remain calm and we do this by putting others first, by tempering our inclinations to ditch civility for the primal urge of survival. You know, let's say that you are super thirsty and you're going to get water and you can temper your natural drive to slake your thirst by letting someone else get to the water fountain before you. You know, that way you have won a victory of self-governance at a time when it could be most truly exercised. It is when we have a truly compelling need that we have also the opportunity to exercise heroic virtue. Now the best kind of meekness is the kind that is exhibited not because of any circumstance you create for yourself, but rather by accepting with admirable restraint a particularly loathsome circumstance over which you have no control. You know, when it does not come to you from your own hand, or, well, even if it does come to you from a mistake you've made that you can't fix, um, meekness is the strength to withstand those consequences without falling apart. You know, the scourging of Christ was, in my opinion, the ultimate expression of meekness, since Christ did not even cry out. He was clearly the bigger man than his torturers. Okay, um, another great way to practice temperance is by moderation, particularly in the use of media, in the consuming of news and entertainment and digital or virtual experiences that like food or drink, we tend to consume a lot of in our society today. You know, we can limit what we consume just as we limit food or drink in the practices of fasting or abstaining from meat. 
So we could, you know, faster abstain from certain kinds of uh, media during Lent. Uh, and now another way to temper what we consume in the way of digital media, uh, you know, not just to give it up entirely, but another way to do this is to have a discussion about something we've experienced, like a movie, after watching it. Sometimes we have great cathartic moments watching a movie and, and then we go on about our business rather uncritically with all the images and ideas of that movie having a sort of lasting impression on us on a, on a subconscious level. But when we take the time to apply reason in assessing what we just consumed through our eyes and into our hearts and minds and souls, we might discover in a conscious way some of the aspects of what we consumed that were not entirely wholesome or acceptable to us and to the principles, you know, we uh, set out for our lives. You know, the first step in tempering the impact of unwholesome dimensions of digital media is to consciously evaluate them for what they are. A movie may have 90% good and wholesome values, but it's that 10% that glorifies sin or false values or perceptions of the world that can have an erosive effect on our human will to resist sin and embrace what is good. So tempering emotional experience with conscious discursive thought is, is a good idea. Now, of course, everything in moderation and certainly at the right time. In other words, don't ruin the crescendo of a movie by sharing your opinion on it at that very moment. But you can wait and talk about it after the fact. Okay, so that's those are some ideas uh, for uh, practicing uh, the moderate use of media today. Okay, now the last three virtues associated with temperance, according to St. Thomas Aquinas, are modesty, orderliness, and caution or self-control. Now, modesty means purity of heart in action, especially we think of it with regard to dress or speech, but also in the manner uh, with which we conduct ourselves. Um, you know, do we conduct ourselves in ways that are in accord with our dignity as uh, children of God? You know, I used to tell my daughter, you are the daughter of a king, act like it. So I think that that is a good guiding image for us for practicing modesty in uh, dress and speech and behavior. Okay, orderliness is somewhat self-explanatory. Well, unless you're one of those people for whom it is very hard to be orderly. <laughs> orderly orderliness means keeping oneself at the most basic level, clean and neat, and also managing one's belongings well. So a disorderly room or physical appearance is the opposite of the virtue of orderliness. And this is why the old adage came about uh, that says, cleanliness is next to godliness, okay? So this week, clean your room or your apartment or your house or your clothes or yourself and try to keep these things more orderly. Now, not out of an obsessive compulsive need to control your environment or impress other people with your appearance, but truly out of a love for God 
who dwells in you. You are a temple of the Holy Spirit. And also out of charity for those who inhabit or visit your space, your dwelling space, or mostly in imitation of God, who ordered all things in the universe well and invites you as a son or daughter of Adam to tend the garden, so to speak, to manage the affairs of the world around you in an orderly fashion as well. So your God is orderly and we are called to be like him. Now remember that you and your home, uh, both of these are considered to be uh, a temple of the Holy Spirit. And that is, of course, if you invite him and the rewards of having such a guest are indeed many great and lasting. Okay, now the last aspect of temperance is what I call caution or self-control. Self-control is kind of what temperance is, but caution is a particular kind of self-control. Caution is opposed to impulsivity, which can be expressed in a number of ways. We can be impulsive in expressing sexual desire or in expressing our opinions. You know, George Washington, by the way, was much revered for his temperance in sharing, or rather not sharing, his opinion very freely. Um, we can be impulsive while shopping, while making important decisions, while dealing with a friend or a neighbor, and so many circumstances of life. So let's try also this week to curb our tendency to be impulsive and try instead to exercise a bit more caution in all of our affairs. Well, that is certainly all we have time for today. Uh, thank you for delving into the why and the how of practicing temperance with me. I hope this has been helpful to you. Temperance is a necessary part of the grassroots citizen movement that will make this nation great again. Temperance has the power to fix a great number of the problems in our country today, not the least of which is out of control federal government spending and federal micromanaging of our lives and states through the use of unelected regulatory agents and bureaucrats, something that our founding fathers never envisioned for us and certainly not something our revolutionary soldiers gave their lives defending. If we practice virtue, you and I are part of the solution. Let's stay that way. And uh, please be assured of my prayers this week, as together we fight the good fight of practicing the virtue of temperance. That's all for today. Bye now.